0: Material success and prosperity are the aspirational goals of many Americans. The myth of meritocracy embedded in this national ethos has made this dream a civil religion. In Profane Parables, Film and the American Dream, Matthew Ringe explores critiques of this vision of contemporary America in... Material success and prosperity are the aspirational goals of many Americans. The myth of meritocracy embedded in this national ethos has made this dream a civil religion. In Profane Parables, Film and the American Dream, Matthew Ringe explores critiques of this vision of contemporary America in popular cinema. Through a close investigation of the film's Fight Club, American Beauty, and About Schmidt, Ringe dissects constructions of the relationship between national success and the accompanying denial of death. Myth has long been a central motif in the study of religion, so he frames film as parables that dismantle orthodox myths. Putting these films in conversation with biblical texts, Ringe demonstrates how cinema can be situated as both myth-maker and myth-deconstruction. In our conversation, we discuss the prosperity gospel of American nationalism, creating a meaningful life, the denial of human fragility, biblical laments, in the field of religion and film. I'm one of your co-hosts Christian Peterson and thanks again for listening to another episode of New Books in Religion. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Matthew Ringe about Profane Parables: Film and the American Dream, published with Baylor University Press in 2016. Welcome Matt, thanks for joining us on New Books in Religion. How are you doing?
1: I'm well, thank you for having me Christian.
0: Yeah, so this book, Profane Parables, uh, was a really interesting read as somebody who's interested in kind of the field of uh, religion and film and uh fan of these films as well. Uh, I think you did a great job and I look forward to teasing them out with you. But before we get into it, uh, we always like to know a little bit about our author and how they came to the topic. So can you tell us how you became interested in the study of religion, perhaps Uh, folks who have been uh, influential in shaping your interest in religion and film or moments that have been uh, formative for you.
1: Sure. Yeah. And thank you for having me on. Um, I did my undergrad at UC Santa Barbara, where I was a history major. And my plan was to teach history in inner city Los Angeles. I ended up taking a lot of church history classes because the history major at UCSB was very flexible, and that um, piqued my interest in a subject that I hadn't really been interested in before. One of my history profs asked if I had thought about going to graduate school when I finished, and that possibility had nowhere appeared on my kind of orbit. But in conversation with him, I decided to apply to a couple of grad schools. So I went to Notre Dame and ended up doing a master's in biblical studies, basically. And I then did a second master's at um, Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. And that was the first time where I started to study theology and film, religion and film in an academic context. And I worked with Rob Johnston, who's written several books on uh, theology and film. And so when I went to Emory University for my PhD, I, I was actually really torn between my interests in New Testament studies and my interest in religion and film. And I ended up doing my PhD in New Testament, and one of my outside areas was religion and popular culture. And Gary Latterman was a prof that I worked with there who kind of helped me navigate and think about how I might be able to do um, religion and popular culture along with New Testament. One of the unfortunate things uh, is that in a lot of the top-notch programs, academic programs for PhD students, is that there really aren't many that focus specifically on religion in film or theology and film or bible and film. And uh, the Profane Parables book would properly be like located within the field of Bible and film, which is kind of a subset of these larger religion and film and theology and film fields. But my interest stemmed from a lot of different kinds of things. One was just having personal experiences of watching certain films and feeling as though I was having a kind of sacred um, experience in the context of, of that film. So that happened for me with uh, a film like Magnolia and a lot of other films. And one of the things that the field of religion and film helped me to do was to provide me with a certain kind of vocabulary or lexicon for describing. Um, some of the kinds of encounters, s- sacred or otherwise, that pe- people could have with films. So I don't know if that helps, but
0: yeah, that's great. Now, uh, could you talk a little bit about how this uh, project began to emerge as a book? Uh, you know, how how did you come to think about and write about these particular films? Why did you construct it around this this idea of of, uh, of parables? Um, What brought it all together for you?
1: Yeah, that's a a great question. So I was, I think, initially struck with an observation that a number of films were appearing in 1999 and shortly thereafter that seemed to acutely critique the American dream as something that was existentially bankrupt, uh, indicting the American dream for failing to provide people with real genuine meaning. And what was striking to me about this was that at that time in our history, we were economically doing extremely well if one measures that kind of thing by how the S&P 500 does. Uh, The stock markets up until 99 were doing remarkably well. And so at a time of economic, quote unquote, prosperity, there were artists who were voicing profound dissatisfaction with the American dream. And that struck me because it seemed to be a time when the American dream should have been living up to everything that it um, said it could do for people. So one of the things in New Testament studies that I've been drawn to are Jesus's parables. And I'm intrigued with their rhetoric of disorientation, uh, which is a term that I am borrowing from Walter Brueggemann, who himself kind of appropriates it from Paul, uh, Paul Ricoeur. And in that the the parables often dislodge and disrupt people because they subvert conventional wisdom uh, that people hold dear. And so at some point I started to think about these films as parables, uh, operating like parables, acting like parables in terms of taking... The American Dream, which I consider kind of a sacred ethos of Americanism, which I think of as the dominant religion in America, and um, annihilating that sacred ethos and kind of laying it bare for for how empty it is. So I was really intrigued with the concept of films operating like parables, and within the... Broader field of Bible and film, one of the things that's compelling to me about that is that most of the work up until this point in Bible and film has focused on what some people call Bible on film. So, Jesus movies or Hebrew Bible epics um, like Exodus, Gods, and Kings, or Noah that are made into movies. Or some Bible and film scholars look at what's called Bible in film, which are films like Magnolia that will cite Exodus 8.2 or a Terence Malick's Tree of Life that will open with a quote from Job 38. And one of the things I thought this book could do that was different for the field of Bible and film was rather than talk about the Bible on film or the Bible in film or even Bible and film and dialogue was to examine ways in which films could function like biblical text. So I, I kind of call it film as Bible ways in which films could operate religiously um, and that religious operation in, ter- in terms of functioning like a parable is in itself taking aim at a dominant religion in our culture. So a lot of those things were c- compelling to me.
0: Now, uh, the way you're thinking about parables uh, through these films is that they dismantle orthodox myths but can you you talk a little bit uh, about this tension? Where where is cinema situated as both a myth maker, uh, kind of producing the American dream, but also as this kind of myth deconstructor? Um, you know, how does this how does this fit for uh, your analysis?
1: Absolutely, yeah, that's an excellent question because um, as with all kind of um, texts. Or systems, we have quite a bit of diversity, even with Hollywood itself. I I would say that the dominant norm in Hollywood is to produce films that in some way support or enhance or uplift certain myths uh, that we've come to cherish, such as the American dream. So uh, Frank Capra, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Rocky franchise. A number of these kinds of films celebrate the myth of the eventual success of the ordinary everyman if that person is willing to, like Horatio Alger, work so hard to overcome the obstacles in his or her path. I do think there is a smaller uh, section of films that resist that tendency. And I find those films uh, much more interesting because of that or compelling or captivating. And so I think Fight Club, American Beauty and About Schmidt fall into that category. I think a number of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's films do as well. And this is one of the reasons why I think um, maintaining a viable independent cinema is so important um, in America and in countries around the world, so that artists have the ability to put forth uh, visions that don't um, succumb to a kind of facile, superficial, shallow uh, myths that we're all maybe somewhat tired of or fatigued by.
0: Now. Um- in in your kind of uh vision of the american dream it's very much uh, revolving around ideas of prosperity of the nation um in opposition to failures in in different ways um so h- how should we think about this relationship between uh national success and the denial of death uh, denial of death in this kind of um hyper americanism that be, that plays out as kind of a civil religion in your in your analysis.
1: Right. Yeah, that's a good question. I I do want to argue that p- part of the fundamental fabric of the american dream is a, a gospel of unfettered success and I think this is evident in the first um definition that we have of the American dream um, up through uh, Donald Trump's campaign and presidency, I think one of the things that Trump was able to latch onto was a feeling on the part of some that um, a quintessential aspect to to being an American is to succeed. And notwithstanding the reality of his his Donald Trump's successes or failures, I think he has been able to project an image, a facade, a veneer of success in different ways that maps onto a myth in the American dream that regardless of a person's station or where they originate, there is always the capacity for a person to climb this escalator into professional and economic success. That success can look differently. It can also be relationally oriented or athletically oriented or But but it's always the notion of improvement, of getting better, and I do think an unfortunate consequence of that insistence on success is an inability to cope with, to manage failure, loss, defeat, Um, and if one thinks of death as a um, the epitome of that kind of um, failure or defeat, then I think it does make sense why Ernest Becker um, finds that death has to be banished from our um, cultural mindset or landscape because it it represents the antithesis of the myth that we're promised, which is that we can forever kind of pursue or find success. And I think death stands as the great kind of uh, the mirror that shows us what a lie that gospel of success really is.
0: Now, um, to dive into some of these films, um, Fight Club is probably well-known by uh, by most listeners here. So I don't think we need a, a full-on synopsis. Um, but in this film, the American dream certainly becomes the object of critique. Um, how would you say this film kind of illuminates our understanding of the American denial of human fragility uh, – what, what answers does it offer in kind of deconstructing the American dream?
1: Sure, yeah, I, I think at one level, the film very clearly wants to argue that the more we exercise death and banish it away from us, the more our lives are going to become personally, existentially meaningless and also um, pervaded by a kind of relational alienation. And, and so the Edward Norton's unnamed main character begins the movie um, as a kind of zombie-like figure who has no real purpose, um, meanders through life, uh, is an insomniac. And every single step he's gonna take from that point on is gonna bring him closer to death. And so he joins these uh, support groups for men who have testicular cancer. And that brings him into an emotional space where people grieve and lament their deaths. He's gonna join the fight club where the threat of death becomes not just emotional, but physical. Tyler Durden is gonna have him drive his car and let go of the steering wheel. And when they crash, it's significant that you know Tyler wants to name this as a near life experience so that the more I inflict pain or experience pain, the more alive I can become. And I think what's being critiqued is a, is a culture that is so accustomed to numbing our pain that what we also discover is that we, we numb our aliveness to everything else at the same time, in, including other people. So I I think the narrator's relationship with Marla Singer, played by Helena Bonham Carter, is also hugely significant in that the narrator doesn't create Tyler consciously out of his psyche until the point when he's in a phone booth and he calls Marla when she answers the phone. He can't handle dealing with her as a real person, so he hangs up and then calls Tyler and for the first time kind of summons him out of his unconscious to begin to take over. And that's also why it's so significant at the very end of the film, when we see the narrator killing Tyler, um, he's able to hold hands with Marla. And that's the kind of, um, if this were a Disney movie, that would be the kind of Disney-esque moment in the film when they're holding hands and watching these credit card buildings collapse. Um, and to get to that point um, of being able to connect with Marla as himself and not his alter ego, Tyler has really had to um, face death and the reality of his own demise in a, in a way. And, and Tyler was crucial for him to do that a crucial kind of catalyst. And I think part of the intelligence of the film is that it, Suggests that things that are crucial for our own growth in that manner, like Tyler, at some point may have to be uh, destroyed, even though they were previously helpful.
0: Now, uh, part of what you do in this chapter in your your analysis of the film is you you look at uh, this language of lament. Um, so, how how does Fight Club echo kind of biblical laments?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, and the the film primarily does this in uh, the chemical burn scene, where Tyler Brad Pitt's character um, gives a, a burn of the chemical lie onto Edward Norton's hand, and as he as um, Edward Norton's character is moaning in pain, Tyler says, um, "We have to face the reality that God does not." like us, um, that that God might hate us, that God never wanted us, we're God's unwanted children. That's mostly what Tyler says there um, about God, in addition to saying that the worst thing is that we don't really need God. That scene comes from a more extended scene in Chuck Polinick's novel, where Tyler talks about how if, uh, if our fathers are models for God and our fathers Baal, what does that tell us about God? And what it tells us is that God doesn't want us. Um, And so what we have to do is get God's attention. And the only way to get God's attention is to behave badly. And this behaving badly might result in God condemning us. But that divine condemnation for Tyler is much preferable to being ignored by God or neglected by God. And so that scene in the novel is significant because it illuminates part of the reason for the narrator's um, creation of Fight Club and a lot of the anarchic behaviors that he and others engage in, which is that they're trying to get the attention of this divine figure whom they feel has completely ignored them. And they'd rather get that attention and be sent to hell because... Then, according to Tyler, at least that way God would know our names. So a lot of that material was um, left out of that chemical burn scene in the film. Some of it was actually included in an internet spot that the director David Fincher created, but Fox executives uh, wouldn't allow him to air any of those um, internet advertising spots which is telling about the way they wanted to advertise the film, which it turned out they basically advertised it as a kind of huge fight fest without a lot of these deeper religious, theological, philosophical undertones. And I don't know if that's one reason why the film did so poorly at the box office. But what you have there in the novel and a little bit in the chemical burn scene is Tyler appropriating a biblical genre, which is lament, where in the Psalms, in the book of Job, you have uh, people who accuse God of neglecting them or inflicting pain on them, and they express their anger to God. And this is much more of a normal part of um, Jewish worship than it is for uh, Christians. And the most famous lament in the New Testament is when Jesus dying on the cross in Mark and Matthew says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so there's on the part of uh, Job, people in the Psalms, Jesus and Tyler, a very honest kind of wrestling with and accusing God for failing to provide some very basic things one of the revealing uh, differences between lament in the Bible, which is almost always rooted in experiences of agony or pain or suffering. And then the one who's lamenting is pleading with God to end that pain or suffering in fight club. The lament is actually rooted in numbness and in absence of pain. And so the narrator and Tyler have to plead for pain to be kind of introduced. So it's almost a flipping of the script or a subversion of conventional lament in that way.
0: Now, uh, American Beauty also is uh, famously known. um, And here the film puts forth a critique about the the spiritual failure in a way of the American dream. So how, how would you say the film untangles uh, American life, the search for meaning, and, and death.
1: Sure, yeah. I, I think American Beauty is, um, along with Phi Club, very interested in the existential failure of the American dream. But it's also quite uh, attentive to the aesthetic um, elements in the American dream. And it wants to dethrone a lot of things that in American culture are typically held up as paragons of beauty. So in in the film, this is um, the symbols of, stereotypical symbols of beauty are Angela, this blonde, um, nubile cheerleader, and these red roses that ring uh, Carolyn Burnham's yard, who uh, was played by Annette Bening in an amazing performance. And instead of those things being seen as beautiful, the film wants to argue that beauty is found first in the the mundane, in the ordinary. And Alan Ball, the screenwriter of the film, said that for him, this was a very Buddhist notion that he appreciated in studying Buddhism, which was being able to find the beauty in the mundane. Some might call this uh, a kind of sacramental imagination, the ability to experience the, the sacred in the midst of the secular. Um, but And this is typified in the scene with the floating plastic bag that Ricky films and then shows to Jane and says that this plastic bag somehow made him feel as though there was this benevolent presence in the world that wanted him to never fear, which is a a big deal considering the parental abuse that he has to live with. Um, The film also wants to look at Jane, which is what Ricky does literally through the video camera as, um, as a side of beauty. And I think the, the most controversial or one of the more difficult aspects of the film that I still haven't wrapped my head around completely is its argument that death is truly a side of beauty. And Ricky tries to communicate this to Jane when he tells her about filming a a dead homeless woman once. And Jane can't understand why he would do such a thing. And he said, well, because when I, when I looked in her eyes, I, I could see God. And if I was careful, I could see God looking back at me. And then Jane says, well, what did you see? And then he says, I saw beauty. And that scene informs a scene towards the end of the film where, after Lester Burnham is shot uh, by his homophobic neighbor, um, Ricky comes into the kitchen and sits right next to Lester and, and has this kind of sacred moment with him that might appear to be grotesque or disgusting or creepy, But Ricky's earlier conversation with Jane kind of lets us know that he's having a divine, sacred encounter. And what remains difficult is how how that happens with a corpse. You know, it's one thing to see beauty in a plastic bag; it's another thing to find beauty in a corpse. And as I said, I'm still remain troubled. And haven 't totally figured out, and I think this is part of the mysticism of the film and the mystery of the film, is that how you find beauty in that I can understand how coming closer to death can enliven a person, which is you know one of five club 's main arguments. but the ability for Ricky again to find beauty in that in in people who have died is I think, a step beyond where i 'm at. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the final movie you look at uh, about Schmidt uh, is, a, is a great movie. Um, I didn't get to rewatch it before it's speaking with you or reading the book, but uh, I do remember it from a while back, and uh, it's maybe not as familiar. Um, how would you say this film fits into the kind of narrative of the American dream and uh, kind of the individual?
1: Sure, and what's – So here's what's unhelpful about these, the three films I chose. Uh, They all feature straight white men and their own encounters with the American Dream. And so it offers a very limited, narrow way of experiencing the American Dream in terms of gender, sexual orientation, race. I, I think what's helpful about those films is that they do. Illuminate an element of what we might call whiteness or a part of white identity vis a vis the American dream. And in each film, you have a white, straight male at a different age who experiences the American dream to be bankrupt and meaningless. And about Schmidt, it's um, Jack Nicholson's character, Warren Schmidt, at his retirement, who comes to discover contrary to the claims of his best friend, Ray, at the retirement party, who says that the things in life that are most meaningful are friends, family, and a meaningful career. And that speech that Ray gives, where he lifts up friends, family, careers, what's most meaningful, I think is uh, um, an impressive rhetorical ploy by Alexander Payne, the film's screenwriter and director, because when most of us in America, I think, hear that speech, we resonate with it and say, yes, that's true. I think meaning is found in friends, family, in my career. And then it, Alexander Payne wastes no time after that point in showing how horribly, each of those areas fails to really provide Schmidt with meaning. So he very quickly discovers that his um, wife of many decades not only dies, but that she had also been having an affair with none other than Warren's best friend, Ray, the guy who gives that speech. Um, Warren Schmidt is deeply estranged from his own daughter, who's going to get married and wants her dad to have really nothing to do with the wedding or her fiance. And um, Schmidt discovers that the people at his career could care less about any advice he wants to give them. And so Schmidt sets out on this cross country kind of journey in his RV. uh, And he tries to find meaning in these different sites, such as nostalgia, which which is a place, interestingly, that American Beauty says one can find meaning. In nostalgia, in his past, his his home where he grew up, his college fraternity, all of these turn out to be disasters. He tries to find meaning in a romantic encounter with this woman named Vicky in an R- RV park. That's a disaster. That moment in the film is telling because in the novel about Schmidt, that is where the main character, Schmidt, actually finds meaning. He ends up having... A romantic affair with a much younger waitress, and when Alexander Payne adapted the film and wrote the screenplay he he took that out because he wanted schmidt's life to be completely bereft of meaning he He wanted Schmidt to realize that there is no meaning that there is no lesson within the confines of the American dream, and so the only sliver of meaning that Schmidt experiences is through this sponsoring relationship of a child um, named Indugu, And at the very end of the film, he receives a, a picture that Indugu has drawn of Warren Schmidt and Indugu holding hands. And this is the only thing that gives just the slightest of reprieve to Schmidt's immense depression over realizing he hasn't made a difference in anyone's life. And I think what Payne does there is suggest that the American dream is so uh, empty and bankrupt and meaningless that for a person to find meaning, one actually has to go outside of the American context to do so, which is what Schmidt has to do. And in that sense, what surprised me about the film was that I think in the end, it's actually more of a radical challenge to the American dream than either fight club or American beauty, because both of those films are going to say that it's possible to find meaning. And that that can be done in the, within the American framework. But for about Schmidt, you have to completely leave that framework to find any trace of meaning.
0: Now in in this uh, section, you also kind of draw on the parallels between the film um, and biblical uh, parables. Um, so how, how do they complement each other and where do they diverge in your analysis?
1: Right. So I, I was intrigued with a, a parable that Jesus tells called the Parable of the Rich Fool that my first book was actually about uh, that was based on my dissertation. Um, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus talks about this a man who um, looks at his fields that have produced so much um, abundance of food and then wonders what he's going to do. And he decides he's going to tear down his barns and build much larger ones and, and then store the surplus of his foods in those barns. And then God shows up. It's the only parable Jesus tells where God makes an appearance, which is striking because um, Jesus's parables on the whole are, are fairly what we might call secular. Um, But God shows up and God calls this rich man a fool. He tells the man he's gonna die tonight and he asks him all the things, all this food that he's prepared, whose will it be? So like most parables, this one is surprising because by planning to store his goods, the man appears to be doing something that would be prudent or wise or thoughtful. What's missing for the man is any thought of his own potential death. And this is what God's presence leads the man to see that he is going to die. And there are a lot of ways of using wealth and possessions that can be meaningful, even if one's going to die soon. And Jewish wisdom literature So texts like Kohelet, um, Ben Sirah, are very interested in this question about how can I use my wealth and possessions in a way that will be meaningful even if I die soon. So Kohelet or Ecclesiastes says, if you enjoy them, uh, you're going to be enhancing yourself. And Ben Sirah says, if you give them away in the form of alms to poor people, you'll be helping other people. Um, the, The one thing one use of possessions that is meaningless in the context of a potentially imminent death is just saving them up because it doesn't benefit the user or anyone else. So the presence of death allows this rich man in the, in the parable Jesus tells to recalibrate how he thinks about using possessions and wealth in a way that can provide meaning. And in a similar way, in the film about Schmidt, the first greatest shock to Schmidt is when his wife dies unexpectedly, canceling their plans to go across um, the country together on a vacation. And this is the first kind of catalyst for Schmidt to start thinking differently about whether and how his own life is meaningful. And then at the very end of the movie – One of the reasons he's so depressed is because he tells himself, I know I'm going to die. It might be soon. It might be with 10 years. But when I die, who in the world is going to be better because of me? And his answer is no one. No one's going to be better because of me. He then receives that letter from Ndugu that possibly causes him to think that at least one person might be positively influenced by by Schmidt by sponsoring this child. But so it's for in the parable and in the film, the presence of potentially an imminent death allows characters to kind of recalibrate or reconfigure what is it about their lives that are meaningful.
0: Yeah, and about Schmidt now uh, as a Nebraskan, is uh, <laughs> it was, it was I, I'm glad you chose that film. It was a a fun reflection. We're we're coming towards the end here. I want to know if you have. Uh, any future projects we should look forward to, anything you're working on right now, um, either related to to this topic of religion uh, and Bible and film, uh, or more broadly in your, your research? What What's going on with you now?
1: Sure. Uh, there, there are two books that I'm currently working on. One is a book f- with Rutledge that I've just signed a contract for. They do a series of books called The Basics, which are introductions to a discipline for non-specialists, Kind of aimed at the undergraduate college audience, so I'm going to do a, a book for them called uh, Bible and Film, that will take a look at the field or discipline of Bible and Film um, through through some different lenses. And then uh, the second book project is I did an article four or five years ago on lament and divine abandonment in Mark's Gospel, and I'm basically wanting to broaden that into a book to look at the way in which lament and divine abandonment is a central thread through Mark's gospel and why that message is meaningful for the potential audience uh, that the author of Mark is writing to.
0: That's great. Uh, Good luck on both of those and perhaps we'll uh, have you on to to speak uh, more about your work or uh, at least have you in the classroom uh, (laughs) through your new book, so good luck.
1: Yeah, that would be great. Thank you, Christian.
0: That was my conversation with Matthew Ringe about Profane Parables, Film and the American Dream, published with Baylor University Press in 2016. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion.